Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. It's no secret that I listen to my fair share of podcasts mostly while I'm running errands or picking the kids up or taking the kids to school. If I'm in my car, I probably have some sort of podcast on. And like everyone, I also hate when any app on my phone changes. When you move a button from one place to another, I just don't like it. Keep everything the way it is. In fact, if we could all go back to iPhone 4s, I'd be all right with that. Things would be okay with me so long as they put all the buttons back where they were. Well, a while ago, they took the buttons on the podcasting app that I used and they moved them around. And the reason why they moved them around is they added something new in the podcasting app. And what they added was the availability to easily change the speed at which you listened to your podcast. You could listen to it at 25% faster, 50% faster, or if you are really crazy, you could listen to your podcast at double speed. The idea of this sort of blew my mind. Maybe it's because I'm getting older. Maybe it's because the idea of listening to a a podcast at double speed makes my head spin. But I started to ask some of my friends, I started to ask people that I knew that also regularly listen to podcasts, and when I talked to them, I found out how very many of them used precisely this feature. They listened to these podcasts at increased speeds, which got me thinking, why do we do that? Why do we listen to these podcasts at faster speeds? And the answer that I overwhelmingly got from these people that I talked to who listen to podcasts was they said, I want to save time and be able to consume more information. If that isn't a picture of our culture as a whole in one way, I don't know what is. We want our information and we want it fast. A 15-minute daily briefing from our favorite news outlet played at double speed so that it takes just about the same amount of time as two pop songs. Give it to me straight in my veins. Give me the info that I need. Whether we're a Christian or not, this is who we are. This is where we are at as a people, as a culture. A novel consumed in a handful of commutes if you have to drive the bridge to Tampa, just so that you can move on to the next one. A click quick glance at Wikipedia so you don't have to actually do any research and figure anything real out. More information, more speed, more accomplishment. This is who we are. Now look, I could care less if you are listening to an office rewatch podcast at double speed. I don't care. I could care less whether you look up the Wikipedia page of Magellan to remind yourself why we care about that guy. I think he had a boat. But what I do care about is that we have allowed these habits of quick information to begin to creep into the way that we treat our Christianity. They become, Christianity is reduced to something that is bite-sized and consumable. Look, 
Today is January 2nd. Jen even mentioned that it's a time of year where people begin to make resolutions. I know some of you have set out to improve your spiritual disciplines. Maybe you've even decided and set your mind that you're going to read through the Bible in a year, and that's a beautiful goal. But if it becomes something that you are just checking off a list, if it becomes something that you are just doing to make sure that you did it, be careful. Because when we treat Christianity as something to be consumed or checked off of a list and not a person to be adored, we rob God of his glory and ourselves of the relationship that we were created for. When we treat Christianity as something to be consumed or something to be checked off of our list each morning or afternoon or lunch, and not as a person to be adored, we rob God of his glory and ourselves of the opportunity to have the relationship with him that we were created for. Over this spring, we as a church are going to be going through the book of Mark. And as we jump into Mark this morning, I want to set up a few things about the book for you to have in your mind as we go through it. Mark is the shortest gospel, and it's also probably the first gospel that was written. Mark was a very close companion to the Apostle Peter, and as you kind of look through the book, you see hints scattered throughout it that it was probably Peter and Mark working together to write this book, and they were probably writing it to the church in Rome who was being persecuted by Nero. And as such, Mark presents his information in a sort of rapid-fire manner. In some ways, it's as if somebody took Mark's podcasting app and set it to 2x. There are times, and we're going to see some of those this morning, where things that Matthew and Luke spend almost an entire chapter on, Mark will drop a verse or two about and say, yeah, that happened, and completely move on to the next thing. Mark uses the word immediately in the Gospel of Mark more times than in the rest of the New Testament combined. Everything Jesus does in the book of Mark, Jesus does immediately. He heals someone, and then immediately he leaves. And he gets to the house, and immediately upon getting to the house, he heals the woman in the house. And then immediately after that, that's repeatedly, you're going to hear it again and again. He is going fast. So as we approach the book, especially as we look at it one chapter each week, there are going to be weeks, this week included, where I'm not going to address and sort of highlight every single story in the chapter. There's just so much going on in Mark because he is going so fast. I'm not picking these because some are important and others are not, but I'm doing this because it's not our goal to consume information given to us by the gospel of Mark. Our goal in all of this is to grow closer to the subject of the book, Jesus the Messiah. So if you would, Stand with me and listen as I read Mark chapter 1. It'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there if you have your Bibles with you. You can look there as well. The Gospel according to Mark chapter 1. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare a way your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in, with camel's hair and wore a belt, a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his, as, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her and he came in and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. The evening, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. We talked a great deal about John the Baptist through this time of Advent that we just celebrated. And so I'm going to kind of leave that as it is. And I want to point your attention first to Mark's account of the temptation of Jesus. One of the reasons I want to do this is because it is very Mark-like. Both Matthew and Luke spend a fair amount of time going into the details of Jesus' temptation. If, when you think of Jesus' temptation, you are probably thinking of Matthew or Luke and not Mark. Because did you catch what Mark said? He had two lines for it. He said that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And the only other details he give us, gives us is that there were wild beasts out there and that there were angels who were ministering to them. 2x speed. Mark is flying. He is going through this. But the reason, the reason that Mark leaves out so many details of Jesus' temptation is that Mark is less concerned with the content of the temptation than he was with the existence of the temptation. Remember, Mark is writing to Christians who are under persecution. Nero has blamed the great fire of Rome on the Christians inside the city. And so he has used them, he has scapegoated them for the fire that likely he set. And now they are being thrown to these wild beasts in the Colosseum. There's a great temptation for these Christians in Rome to give up. They were tempted like we are. And Mark wants them to know that so was Jesus. Tempted to give up and give in. Tempted to shift the story to be about us. Tempted to impose on the grace of God. But the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus never did give in. Jesus never did sin. And that's not like this is the end of Jesus' temptation. It's not like Satan asked Jesus three questions, kind of gave him three temptations and said, ah, oh, he didn't fall for any of those. Well, guess I'll go home and make a new plan and never try this again. No, just like us, Jesus' temptation was ever present. He knew what it was like to have the overwhelming and never-ending presence of trials in our soul. Which is why I think it's important that Mark pointed out that Jesus didn't just stumble into temptation. This wasn't Jesus kind of going, oh, oh no, there's Satan. No, there was a very intentional movement of the Holy Spirit to drive Jesus out into the wilderness where he would experience Satan. The Holy Spirit was the one who, did you catch it, immediately after his baptism, sent Jesus out into the wilderness. 
This is, yes, in part, a part of what Mark is doing is showing how Jesus is the truer, better Israel. Think about how many times the people of Israel were sent out into the wilderness. Moses, after he murdered the Egyptian, was sent out into the wilderness for 40 years before he was prepared to go back into Egypt. The people of Israel walked around the desert for 40 years after failing their temptation and complaining back to God. It was Elijah who was with God for 40 days in the desert, the wilderness around Mount Horeb, preparing Elijah to hear the voice of God. But Mark tips his hat at something that he is trying to show us by the fact that immediately after Jesus is tempted, Jesus begins his ministry. This is interesting because we know from the Gospel of John that this is actually... Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee sometime later. You've maybe read John chapter 3 where Jesus talks to Nicodemus. That happens in between his temptation and then when he starts his ministry. You've read the story maybe in John chapter 4 of the woman at the well where Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. That happens in between the temptation and Jesus beginning his ministry. But Mark is telling us a story. He's weaving things together and showing how the cause and effect is happening. And what he's showing us is that our trials are what lead us to our opportunity to love and serve others. For Mark, it is the trials of Jesus that lead him to ministry. Church, it is in the crucible of trials It is in the fire of temptation where our soul is forged in a way that we are then prepared to love others on the other side. Look, I know many of your stories over the past few months. I know that many of you have had incredibly difficult things that you have been going through. And that's to say nothing of the past two years of what we have been going through corporately as a culture, as a society. It has been a time of trial. It has been a time of temptation. And look, I'm not going to pretend to know whether we're in the beginning, middle, or end, or whatever of this whole situation. But what I do know is we have a choice on how we are going to look forward. How are we going to look at this time of trial and temptation that we have been through? All of these things that we've gone to up to this point, are we going to look and see the Holy Spirit preparing us for what he has next? Are we going to just wish that things were different? Wish for the good old days. I remember when you didn't have to wear a mask anywhere. I remember, I remember when restaurants didn't close and cancel your reservations because their staff got COVID. I remember when you didn't have a hurricane of decisions and choices that you had to make to do simple things. I wish it was the good old days. We can go back. We can can look back and sort of wish for those days, or we can look forward and ask, what is this trial? What is this temptation teaching us that we need to love others for next? Where are we going that the Holy Spirit needed to take us to the wilderness in order to teach us? If we can look forward like that, we can begin to ask ourselves questions. In what ways can you love others now that you couldn't two years ago? We need to ask ourselves questions like, how can you serve others? What needs are there that you can meet 
that you couldn't meet before? How can you share your faith or invite someone to church that you couldn't before? Maybe because you didn't know them. Maybe because you didn't have a relationship. But this, this pandemic, this crucible, this trial has given you new relationships. Maybe you know your neighbors better because they're the only people you see not on a screen on a regular basis. Is God preparing that for you in a new way? The temptation of Jesus is what pushed him to then go and start his ministry. We have a beautiful hope in the message of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what the message of the gospel was for Jesus. And this is the heart of what we as this church still have to say. Notice that it begins with grace and ends with our response, not the other way around. We don't clean ourselves up and come to Jesus. We don't repent and believe and then get the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come. Our job is to respond to the fact that it has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Jesus has come down because we couldn't make up the distance to go to him. The kingdom has come down because we could never climb up. God is sovereign over all the earth and has defeated Satan in his life through his temptation and in his death and resurrection. And our response is to be a life of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is not the beginning. It's not a one point in time thing. You do it, check it off your list, and you move on with your Christian life. Repentance and faith is the blue and red blood of the heart of our faith. It is constantly pumping in and out of us, constantly going through. We are constantly repenting, seeing new ways that we have sinned against God, seeing afresh that the grace of God covers even those new ways. And then we find things, when we find that the rabbit hole goes deeper than we imagined, that our sin is worse than we even wanted to admit, worse than we still want to admit, we find that the grace and mercy of Jesus is deeper still, pumping in and out. If I was much better at science, this illustration could be richer and better, but some of you can imagine it. Some of you can imagine the way that our heart pumps blood through our body, constantly cycling the oxygen to all of our limbs. That is repentance and faith for us as Christians. And speaking of bodies, I wanted to skip ahead a few verses down in the chapter to go to another section where there's two back-to-back -back stories, just like the, the temptation and beginning of Jesus' ministry. I want to talk about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and then the healing of the people at the doorway to her house. Jesus immediately, as he tended to do all throughout this chapter, as you will see, as I mentioned throughout this book, goes from the synagogue to Peter's house. And when he gets there, Peter's mother-in-law is ill. And Peter does not make that we have recorded a single mother-in-law joke, but instead tells Jesus that his mother-in-law is ill. And Jesus does something that was a little culturally shocking, which was he went up to where she was sleeping. It was not common for, for Jewish men to, to intermingle with Jewish women. But Jesus did. He went up and not only did he go up, but he came and he touched her, held her by the hand, and healed her. While Jesus came to preach the gospel to people, he also came to deal with the physical woes that sin has wrecked on your life and mine and the world 
around us. I love the line from Joy to the World that says, he comes to make his blessings known. Does anybody remember? Far as the curse is found. Jesus comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Everywhere where the curse of sin has touched, Jesus is coming to make his blessings known. And that's not just in our spiritual lives. That's in our bodies as well. Jesus doesn't believe, Jesus doesn't teach some sort of dualistic idea that spirits are good and bodies are bad, that we should never have anything to do with our bodies. We should just do spiritual things. No, Jesus had a body. Jesus had a body. He got tired. Jesus took naps. And it's absolutely reasonable to think that Jesus got sick from time to time. He was fully human just as we are. And Jesus had compassion on all of those who came to him asking to be healed. So we can't divorce our bodies from our faith. They are interconnected. What we do with our bodies matter. That's actually why we do a number of the things that we do here at City Church. Think of the ways that we use our bodies as a part of worship in City Church. Think about the ways that we do that. We, we stretch out our hands, palms toward heaven, as we receive God's blessing on us. Because our bodies matter. Because when we put our palms up like this, we are receiving something. Think about the fact that when we confess our sins, I stand and face the same direction as you do because I need it just like you do. Think about the fact that when we come forward to the table, we receive. When we hear the assurance of pardon, we lift up our heads because our body, our posture matters. We stand to hear God's word read. What we do with our bodies matters, both here in church and throughout the week. But we can't overcorrect. There is a temptation to overcorrect and say that our bodies are all that matters. I think Paul helps us with this. Paul says that bodily exercise is profitable, but spiritual vitality is for this life and the life to come. There is no shortcut to fitness. Trust me. I probably would have tried it. There's no way you can hack your way through getting fit. And the same is true, if not more true, in our spiritual lives. There are no shortcuts to a vital relationship with Jesus. You have to put in the work. Just like those whose bodies are are physically capable and chiseled, get that way through painstaking work. Those whose souls have a six-pack, get that way through the work of prayer, of faithful Bible reading, of meditation on the gospel. Not just checking something off of a list. Not just saying, okay, read my three chapters, keep this pace up, I'll finish the Bible by the end of the year. No, not by checking things off a list. In fact, Jen mentioned earlier our daily prayer project. One of the reasons why we encourage people to use this as a tool of spiritual formation is it encourages us to be contemplative. It encourages us to pepper our Bible reading with prayer with confession, with hearing from other cultures, other churches around the world. It makes us remember 
that we are not alone, that our Bible reading isn't a task to be accomplished. It is a means to a person to be adored. And there's also something else that happens here that's one of those sort of stranger parts of this entire passage that we read, which was as Jesus is casting out the demons, he tells all of the demons that they can't tell anybody about who he is. He didn't want the demons to spoil his preaching ministry and the revelation of who he was to those whose eyes were being opened by the Holy Spirit. And the funny thing is that the demons obeyed him every time. The demons obeyed Jesus. They didn't go around telling everyone that the Son of God had come. Now, the demons obeyed, but, but the people didn't. The demons obeyed Jesus, but the people didn't. Mark closes this chapter with the story of a man with leprosy. Now, now, what we believe in as leprosy now, what we have in, as leprosy now is a very specific uh, sort of skin disorder. But in the Bible... Leprosy was sort of this catch-all term that was basically any hereditary or contagious and persistent skin disease. It could be certain kinds of rashes, it could, all kinds of stuff. It was a skin thing. It was leprosy. And the Bible goes into great detail about what happened and what you had to do if you came down with leprosy. There were rules for how you were supposed to act once you got leprosy, if your leprosy was cleansed, what you had to do, and what the sacrifices you had to offer. In fact, Leviticus 13 and 14, two chapters of Leviticus are dedicated to how to act if you've got leprosy. And, and I just want to point out that when Moses lays out what we're supposed to do if we have this contagious disease, he says that you have to move outside of the city or town and you have to live in a desolate place. You have to announce your presence and stand far off from people and you have to wear clothes that indicate that you have leprosy, including wearing a mask over your face. Yes, the Bible's commands for those people with leprosy was quarantining, social distancing, and masks. I'm, I, I couldn't make that up if I tried. Go read Leviticus 13 and 14 if you don't believe me. It super is there. What's funny though, is that this leper has a tendency to not do the right thing because he shucks all of these all of these commands of the Bible, all of these ways that they were supposed to behave as a leper because he comes to Jesus. He is at his wit's end. He leaves the desolate place where he lives and approaches Jesus close enough that Jesus is going to be able to touch him. And he begs Jesus. He says, look, you have the power to cleanse me if you want. That was one of the things that, that set leprosy apart. Leprosy wasn't something that you healed. Leprosy was something that had to be cleansed. And a priest could declare that you had been cleansed, but a priest couldn't cleanse you. But this man comes to Jesus and says, no, I know that you can't just declare me cleansed. You can actually do it. Would you do it for me, Jesus? And Jesus ignores convention too. Because Jesus reaches out and he touches this man with an infectious skin disease. Normally, 
Normally, when you read the Bible, the picture that you get again and again is if something unclean is touched by or touches something clean, the uncleanness goes through. But Jesus is so powerful that he reverses that. That his purity, his cleanliness goes to this man who is unclean and cleanses him. Jesus reverses what is going on through his power and his goodness. But that's not the only reversal that's happening in this story. Something else happens. Because Jesus sternly commands this guy. He says, listen, go offer the sacrifices you're supposed to offer, but don't tell anybody what happened. Don't tell anybody that I was the one who cleansed you of your leprosy. But this guy, unlike the demons, does not find Jesus something worth obeying. And this man goes out and spreads the news. In fact, the phrase that Mark uses is the same phrase that he uses when somebody is preaching the gospel. This guy goes out and starts preaching the gospel about what Jesus did for him, even though Jesus told him no. And as a consequence, Jesus is mobbed with people wherever he goes. He is mobbed by people anytime he tries to go into a town. So what does Jesus have to do? Jesus has to move out to the desolate places. Jesus has to go outside the city. The leper carried the shame and loneliness of being exiled out of the city because of his disease. But at the cleansing touch of Jesus, he's able to reintegrate into the life of the community. He's no longer an outcast, but this comes at a cost, but not to him. This comes at a cost to Jesus. Now Jesus is the one outside the city. Now Jesus is the one who's been cast out and unable to enter church. This leper is us. Our sin and disobedience got us kicked out of the garden. Our evil has exiled us from the heavenly city, but Jesus came and cleansed us. He made us whole. He forgave our sins, but it cost him being driven outside of the city to a hillside beyond its walls where he hung on a cross. Beloved, this is the Jesus who we love and adore. The one who willingly traded places with us in the judgment of God. He switched places with us that that he might reconcile us to God, even if it meant taking our punishment, our guilt, and our shame. The beauty of this message is not one that we can rush through. It's not one that we can check off a list. Adoring Jesus isn't the kind of thing that you even need to put on a task list. Let us say along with Pastor Jack Miller. I love this. Jack Miller's one of my favorite pastors. Pastor Jack Miller said, the only New Year's resolution I make every year is to collapse more fully on Christ. I trust in Jesus' resolve, not my own. Let us fall on him, church. The one who is taken outside of Jerusalem so that we might be invited into the heavenly city. The one who bore the guilt and shame and loneliness of being put out so that you and I might be brought in. So that we might dine with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit around his table. The one we were never fit for. The one we never deserved. And the one who he invites us to now. Let's pray.